episode of Salty Thoughts with Tamal Dodge. Today we are here with my friend Liz Arch. She is a martial artist, yogi, handstand evangelist, and an awesome person. I'm so happy to have you here, Liz. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, and I've never been called a handstand evangelist before. That's exciting. It's a cool title. We saved up <laughs> just for you. Um, so uh, we want to talk about a variety of things today, but we'll just keep it rolling and casual. Um, you're from the same island as me, which we were talking about before we started recording. Yeah. What was it like growing up on the rock? Man, growing up on the rock is the best. Um, it's it's just amazing to be born and raised in Hawaii and on Oahu, and you just grow up infused with this sense of nature and spirituality and just really connecting to the land and kind of stewardship of the land and big family, and I, I, I feel so blessed to have grown up there. Absolutely. And you and I were just talking about all the hidden treasures and secret spots, you know, on the island. Because, you know, most people just think of Oahu as like a big kind of city island, but there's actually a lot of hidden stuff there. There's still a lot of the nature and the essence still hidden in that island itself. And I know you're talking about Kailua, and my brother lives in Kailua, and we're talking about the hidden hidden spots and dreaming about doing a kick-ass yoga retreat together. Um, yes, that would be my dream. What was um, what was it like growing up with your family? Were they very um, athletic? Were they very physical like you? Uh, my family, on my dad's side, they're very Hawaiian. Um, and Hawaii is an interesting place because it's there's a lot of active people. Like there's a beach and you're just outdoors all the time and hiking and swimming and kayaking and surfing. But there's also a big kind of obesity epidemic mm-hmm. there, as you know. Um, so my family, we grew up kind of on the typical Hawaiian diet. Lots of Spam and Kahlua pig and malasadas, which for those of you that don't know are like these sugar donut balls. Um, <laughs> so there there was a lot of eating and it's a lot of also culturally like... Uh, love revolves around food yeah. so I grew up with a lot of that um, so in that way there you know, I kind of didn't get the the best um, healthy upbringing in terms of food choices like I learned about organic and and you know taking refined sugar and all of that much later in life um, but in terms of just growing up outdoors it was a really healthy active lifestyle because we were always at the beach and playing around outside and getting getting a lot of vitamin D from the Sun yeah absolutely so you guys hit up the Portuguese bakeries I see <laughs> oh my goodness yeah all of our family gatherings revolved around food so it was like massive like Thanksgiving and Christmas it was all like all the and you know Hawaiians have huge families like huge in every sense of the word so we would have like 50 people come over and my grandma would be making like my grandma's also Chinese so it would be like chicken feet soup and like just all of these really weird things that I would never eat now (laughs) (laughs) but it was very much a part of our cultural upbringing absolutely 
and I know that um, you know you changed your health and eating habits and things like that. Is it difficult usually when you go back home, or do they pretty much understand? Because I know even my own family, I was raised, you know, 100% plant-based um, ever since I was in the womb. But my family were greatly um, influenced by, you know, American culture in the sense that we were still like, if this makes any sense, American food-based vegetarians. So like, we still ate mm. like dairy and cheese, and you know, we didn't eat uh, fit meat, fish, or eggs, but we ate a lot of just refined food, refined sugars. We were like junk food vegetarians. Yeah. And so, you know, as I kind of transitioned into eating more of a healthy plant-based diet and learning about whole foods and learning about raw food and enzyme nutrition and all these basic things, um, you know, to this day, my family still hasn't adopted the same Mm -hmm. things that I have. I don't know if it was similar to you. Yep. Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge going home um, because they still eat pretty much the same way. So um, this is a great example for Christmas and bless my dad, I love him. Um, and he's a great cook. I mean, we grew up like he's, you know, cooks really hearty, yeah. delicious tasting food, but in terms of um, what's healthy, <laughs> not so much. So I was just home for the holidays, and on our last day, we went over to my dad's house for breakfast, and it was pancakes, waffles, bacon, eggs, spam, Portuguese sausage, and lily koi, which is passion fruit pie. So that is a big uh, departure from what I normally (laughs) eat here which every morning I wake up with like a green juice or a green smoothie and you know a plant-based protein powder Um, and so when I go home I try my best not to lecture them because I feel like it's really hard especially for the people closest to you like they don't really it's hard to kind of you know push your beliefs on anyone so um, I let them do their thing and I just, you know, we still, we have great little local produce and we were talking about down to earth. There's a little vegetarian um, shop in in Kailua. And so I just go there and I do my, get my, my salad bar, but it it is, it's hard to find um, a healthy balance when I go back home. Absolutely. So it relies a lot on discipline. That breakfast sounded intense. (laughs) My, uh, (laughs) my, uh. One of my good friends, he always jokes because he knows I've never eaten any meat in my life. And he's like, what would happen if you ate something like that? He goes, I think you would die. I think you would probably just die on the spot. <laughs> you might just fall over. <laughs> just eat it and die. Um, so um, how did you discover like movement and you know, not just exercise, but movement itself? Like, mm-hmm. It's not a secret that you move kind of like a jungle cat and I know that takes some kind of perseverance and dedication and time to get like that how did you just kind of get introduced to that kind of thing itself I have always loved to move growing up I was really active so we were always like out on the beach and hiking and like just learning how to climb trees like I can climb anything I can like if I see a locked fence like I will hop over it like that's just what you do you climb things and you know, I was like a little monkey growing up um, and then my parents really early on put me into Aikido when I was little so I got my first kind of taste of martial arts when I was like seven years old and I had this old um, 
Japanese master who was kind of like Mr. Miyagi, which was really <laughs> fun. Uh, and then they also put me into gymnastics. And I think that gymnastics for a little kid is one of the best things that you can go into because it just, similar to yoga, you get strength, you get flexibility, you get um, balance, you get all of it. Uh, and that really set up the foundation for me for kind of the rest of my movement in in life um and it's kind of the way i like to move is just be really playful and um that helped transition me into yoga which also helped with a lot of people you know ask about handstands and to be very honest i was able to always handstand so as young as you know eight years old i could handstand i couldn't hold the handstand still but i could always walk on my hands so Mm. i was still like a little monkey in that way like i would just walk all over the place on my hands but the really cool thing when i got into yoga was it taught me the stillness which I didn't have before and it taught me how like the breath connection and how to really hold something in stillness rather than to be kind of uh you know spastic with my movement absolutely and I think people always think that walking your hands is actually harder but it's actually the opposite holding something still is just a whole nother Mm -hmm. ballpark and um yeah it's uh really fascinating how people make a gradual evolution from childhood into things like you're saying you climb trees i grew up climbing trees we'd like climb coconut trees we'd have coconut tree great climbing races and things like that and um (laughs) people always think it's unusual but it's just like how kids should be yeah it's just let's backflip off a coconut tree into the water and see what happens it's only gonna be fun and let's not lose that as adults like it comes in so handy so i just got back um from a trip to hawaii and i didn't have my key to get into the gate (laughs) And so I had to climb over the gate and it's a tall gate and it has like spikes on the top. So like birds don't sit on it. And there was no, my flight got in at like two in the morning. So I can't call my landlord. So literally I just had to climb the gate and you know, (laughs) I'm glad my monkey skills came in handy. When you see the spikes, you're like, ooh, an extra challenge. <laughs> no, it's fun. It's like an adult obstacle course. Oh, it's two in the morning. Time to flip the gate. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and I think people just get very um, afraid of what other people think. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things that I feel we have to let go of in our culture is like, who cares if we look silly or this or that? Let's just act like a monkey and run around on a beach and climb stuff and move around. And, you know, when I watched um, some of your um, Instagram videos lately, I saw you doing all these handstand transitions because now it's more than just holding the handstand still. You're holding it still in the upper body, but you're creating movement in your lower body, mm-hmm. tapping your toes side to side. So always expanding upon what you already have and seeing if you can take that edge a little bit further. Yeah, push it a little further. Yeah. It's really, really neat because I never thought I'd be able to do any of the things that I can do now. So I really feel like I'm actually getting stronger as I age, which is a really cool, empowering thing. Because even though I was really active when I was young and I did gymnastics, I was pretty terrible at gymnastics. Um, I might have shared this story before, but I, I would win, which is not winning at all, but I would get the rainbow ribbon in every competition. My sister would get all of the like gold medals and the blue ribbons and would like, would actually get first place. And they would give me the rainbow ribbon, which is the participation award, which is like, we feel really bad for you because you're so uncoordinated. 
Um, but I remember not even being able to do a back handspring. Like I would do it and I would froggy my legs and land on my head and I could walk on my hands. Yes. But like some of the other tricks and like backflips and I had a harder time with. And so now as an adult, I just getting more awareness of my body and specifically through yoga and through martial arts has taught me so, so much more body awareness. Um, I'm able to do these things that I, I did really terribly as a kid, and now as an adult, I can do them, you know, 10 times better than when I was 10, which is really cool. Yeah, I think it's really wild how far we can take our potential, because we create mental limitations. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Oh my God, you see what that person did? I mm-hmm. could never do that. I can't do this. But we are stunting ourselves mentally before we even try it, so that when we actually do try it, you're already in the back of your head saying, I can't. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes that much harder to actually do it. And um, I remember for years, um, as a kid, I used to think, oh, I, I think I can do that. I think I can do this. And then somewhere in adulthood mm-hmm. is when the doubt, hesitation, and things start to set in. Yeah. And you start to lose that confidence. Absolutely. When you're a little kid, you think you can fly. Yeah, you, know? you can do anything. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really, really true. I remember the first time I ever tried this transition from a handstand lowering down into an arm balance into Ekapada Kundinyasana. And... I saw someone else do it and I thought, gosh, like there's no way I'll ever be able to do that. That looks so crazy. And they're, they're just in another category. They're in another level of, of fitness and of strength and of flexibility. And, um, so I got on my mat and I, I tried to, you know, I was like, how do I do this? And failed miserably. Um, and then gave up on it for like a week. And then, and then I just literally had a mental shift. And I, and I said it in my mind. I was like, today I'm going to do this. And that was it. Like nothing had changed physically. I didn't like, you know, I wasn't like hitting the weights or doing nothing. Nothing had changed physically. I just made a mental shift in my attitude. And I said, no, I got this. That would be awesome if this was like, I'm hitting the weights <laughs> yeah, today. I'm hitting the weights. <laughs> I'm going to hulk up. <laughs> um, but I, it's, and every single time I've, st- I've stuck something new. I, I know it's going to happen right before because I literally feel it in my mind and I feel like I got this yep. and then I just do it and nothing has changed physically. It's just my, my attitude. Yep. It's funny. Uh, <laughs> uh, my jiu-jitsu teacher always says that. He goes, your body is strong if your mind is strong. Yeah. He says it all the time to everybody. Your body is strong if your mind is strong. And it's like so true. Totally it's true. It's like whatever you believe you can do, you can do it. Yeah. You just got to believe that you can do it. And um, when you have that kind of confidence and faith behind your mm-hmm. physical ability, it's incredible what you can do. It's funny, that Kundinyasana transition, the first time I ever learned it was in my buddy's class, Catherine Budig. Uh-huh. She was like, all right, so we're going to try this. <laughs> Those of you who want, go in the middle of the room, you can do handstand. And she had a little tip that just clicked with me because I tried it in the past and I never was able to stick it. She was saying, when you lean forward, you have to chaturanga your arms. Mm-hmm. Think chaturanga. Think chaturanga. And magically it all kind of unfolds yeah. and happens. And, you know, that is also another gateway that I see is where maybe you doubted yourself or you weren't able to figure it out. But then somebody who didn't doubt themselves and who has just a little more knowledge about something mm-hmm. can just unlock a pathway or a door for you. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I heard this example that uh, this awesome teacher said before. He was like, oh. You know, you're all on a hill right now, but you're all on different mountain peaks that I have already conquered just a little bit behind me. I'm just two hills in front of you, but my peaks are a little higher. Mm-hmm. So I can see all of your hills, and I can see actually further 
ahead, just a little bit further ahead. So I'm helping you pave the way to get there. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. It's like you find people who are just going to give you that key yeah. you know, to unlock that door. And oh my God, you can do it. And then you can start sharing that with other people and help unlock other doors. So it's like a yeah. chain reaction. Yeah. Just believing that it's possible and having like someone kind of open the door for you and believe in you first, you yeah. know? I think there was something like, I don't remember what sport it was, but it's in the Olympics. Maybe it was like high jump or something. There was like a Olympic record set that hadn't been broken for like 50 years. And everyone, it was just like literally a mental block. Like this record had been in place for 50 years. So no one thought you could break it because it was this unbreakable record. And then one day, one Olympic, some, a guy broke it. And then every single year after that, someone else broke the new record, broke the new record, broke the new record because it was like, you saw that it could be done. Yeah. So, yeah, there's so much to just believing in yourself and believing that anything is possible. Yeah, and you see things that people do that are just phenomenal. I mean, when I was a, a teenager, I used to go free diving in Hawaii with um, my uncle. Uh, my uncle's very good at it, and, um, you know, he lives out in Waianae, mm-hmm. the radical part of the island. There's dolphins out there. There are. But we would take longboards out, and then we would free dive. And I couldn't, I mean, I would go fairly deep I'd go like 25 30 feet but he would go way down Mm -hmm. and he would go way down and he would sit down there like in meditation holding Mm -hmm. his breath for a long time I'm talking like a long time like three four minutes and then he'd come back up no problem at all and I always think in my mind wow that's amazing then you see other guys out there who are doing free diving (laughs) that just blows past that and you're like how is that physically possible it's because they've created that mental you know breakthrough where they're able to see a little bit further and see how far they could take their potential Mm -hmm. i always think of this story that um i forget the guy's name maybe you guys will remember the first guy to ever climb everest Mm. um in his journal he's near the summit and it's snowing and it's freezing cold he and his sherpas have frostbite and they have oxygen tanks and they're just like suffering at the summit and then they hear a noise outside and look outside their tent and when they look outside their tent they all saw it and it's all documented. There's a butt-naked yogi walking out there with a white, big white beard just strolling up to the summit. <laughs> butt-naked. amazing. Isn't that amazing? It's like, well, man, that's some other kind of mental strength. Right there. He's walking up there butt-naked and he's got a big white beard. He's chilling. <laughs> that's um, awesome. How did you discover yoga? Like, was it uh, something that was natural? Was it something that you just stumbled upon? Where did that fall in? I took my first yoga class at a local uh, Y, YMCA in Hawaii. And it was with one of my friends uh, who was a surfer and he was having some back issues. And so he just wanted to, he heard that yoga would be good for his back. So I told him I'd go with him. And I went with him and um, it was everyone in the class was like 60 years old or older um and I was teenager and they were breathing really heavily and going really slow and chanting and like I just was not in the place (laughs) for that I wasn't in that mental state that wasn't what I was prepared for and so we I felt I'm looking back now I'm like so ashamed for my like whatever 16 year old self or however old I was but we were giggling the entire time like we could not keep it together because people were just making the weirdest noises and going into the weirdest poses 
Um, and so I left that just thinking like that was so weird and <laughs> I'm not going to do that again. Uh, but then I discovered it again when I left the islands and I, I moved to LA for college and uh, we had local, we had yoga classes on campus. And so I would go to a few classes um, and it was more of an athletic style, which resonated with me. And then after college, I was working now as a young professional and really stressed in my job and um, sitting behind a desk, you know, for eight hours a day. And so I found yoga again in Santa Monica and it was vinyasa and power yoga style classes, which were really, um, really fun for me. So it was a, a different style of yoga that I hadn't kind of explored before and it was very physical and I was sweating and I was challenged and I remember like holding a down dog and just like dripping with sweat and like feeling like my arms were shaking and um and then there's these little benchmarks like the first time in in class and I did a bakasana for the first time my first arm balance and it's like this moment of like oh wow this is really cool this is really neat uh so I was addicted first to the physical aspect of it and I think that's kind of a similar story to a lot of people um, and then the deeper layers crept in on me. So I was going through a really stressful time with work and, um, I was also, uh, I was going through, well, I was going to get married. And so I was planning a wedding and I was really young, like 20, 21 maybe. Um, and it was really, really stressful for me planning this wedding and I just remember being in yoga and I was in pigeon pose and I like just started bawling, crying my eyes out on the mat and the teacher, um, it was Allie Hamilton who I love, but she, you know, was talking about releasing and surrendering and letting go of whatever we're holding on to and that we store emotions in our hips and, and all of these things that we hear, uh, but I had never experienced. And so I felt just this huge emotional release, emotional catharsis. And I really realized like, oh, there's something so much deeper here than just physical postures and the physical can unlock so much more. So from that moment on, I was really hooked on, on the deeper layers of it. And, and now it's just, I've carried it with me and it's really helped me through a lot of really challenging times. So it's the one thing that I can always go back to, you know, it's always there for you. Absolutely. You know, I also um, know that you um, are very passionate about empowering people and specifically um, women to, you know, take life by the horns and, you know, be self-accepting. Was this something that um, you always had a plan to do? How did that come about? Yeah. Uh, no, not at all. I actually felt really disempowered for most of my life, but I didn't realize it. Um, I like the person I was when I was teenager and 20s I felt very insecure and kind of unsure of who I was in the world and what I wanted to do and I hadn't quite found my passion um and so I've I've actually been married twice and uh my second marriage was an abusive one and it just showed me all of the worst sides of of myself and um just kind of the the really destructive damaging parts of not loving yourself and not um not not having a strong sense of self and caring for yourself first and so getting out of that was was 
really empowering for me and it was something that now I want to um, help other women that have been through anything similar or any kind of trauma you don't have to go through abuse it can be anything like anything in your life that you're struggling with but I really feel like yoga is a place that can lift you up that can help to um, empower you when you feel you know down it's a place to really look inward um, and it's it's a place where we can all all lift each other up as a tribe and as a community and it's it's just been a huge source of of inner strength and to connect especially actually with trauma i've been doing a lot of research on trauma lately um and a lot of people that have been through any kind of trauma the first thing they feel is they feel disassociated with their body so even just to connect them into their physical body is really really empowering because it brings you into a sense of presence and it brings you into a sense of control because when you're in any kind of trauma state or ptsd you kind of feel like you're out of control and you don't know what's up and what's down. Um, so just to, to ground you, to anchor you into your body, anchor you into your breath um, can be hugely powerful and can be a huge step forward in starting to heal from any kind of trauma. Absolutely. You know, it's like um, I have a good friend who deals with um, helping people with their trauma and helping with abuse and helps with specifically children as well and uh, he's always talking about how it's a process but he also says that life is also very abusive in general Mm -hmm. depending how you handle it Mm -hmm. so it depends on your outlook on life and how you kind of gracefully or ungracefully walk through it and um, you know another thing that I always think about is um, there's so much fear associated and related to you know experiences we had in life and not feeling comfortable to share and tell people about things that have happened to us and also just fear about not being sure if you can do this or you can't do that and uh, fear of what other people think how do you help people overcome fear you know how do you help people yeah judo hip toss fear (laughs) (laughs) Um, fear is such a a powerful, powerful topic to talk about because I think we all feel it. And for a big majority of my life, I was trying to push it away or I was telling myself if I feel um, afraid of something, it means that I'm weak or I'm this or that. And so actually accepting fear as something that we all feel, but then the courage to move through fear. So for me in my life, I'm never going to be able to completely eradicate fear. There's always going to be things that even sometimes, you know, if I'm teaching at a big conference and it's the first time that I'm teaching there and there's like now I'm teaching in front of 200 people rather than my, you know, regular classes with 30 or 40 people, I still have a little bit of like, I hope I, you know, do okay and that kind of thing. Um, But, but really I think courage is, is, looking fear in the face and saying, I'm going to step into you. I'm going to walk into you. I was talking to one of my friends about specifically about fear. And she was telling me that fear is, can be a really powerful acronym. So thinking of it as it's spelled out F E A R, it can either stand for, um, F everything and run or face everything and rise. So that's really been, my mantra for this year and for moving forward is to to face everything and rise. So whatever it is you're afraid of, lean into it. And just by leaning into it, that that diminishes, that takes away the fear, that takes away the power and the hold and the grip that the fear has on you. Uh, I can specifically in my own life relate this to panic attacks. I used to have really 
really debilitating panic attacks. And when I first started experiencing the panic attacks, um, I wanted to push it away. Like it was the scariest thing in the world to me. It's just, just this feeling of like, I, I felt like I was going crazy or dying at the same time. Um, and so if I would feel something come on and usually it's like a physical sensation that you feel in your body and then you start getting afraid of physical sensation. So if you feel your heart rate starting to elevate and then that like triggers you into like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a panic attack. And so I would try to distract myself. So I would like try to watch TV or like do, do anything I could possibly do to distract myself. But when you distract yourself, what you're telling yourself is that these sensations that you're feeling are actually something to be afraid of because you're trying to push them away. And so I worked with a cognitive behavioral therapist um, and he was very, very in line with uh, meditation as well. So the way he coached was through a more of a meditative perspective. And he taught me, he just said, when you feel something coming on, lean into it. So instead of, it's like if you have like a big scary monster at your door and they're pounding trying to break down your door and if you just push against the door as hard as you can, they're just going to pound even harder and now they're going to be kicking on the other side of the door trying to break through. But what happens if you just open the door and let them in? Uh, Then you don't have to do all of that struggle. So that was a huge takeaway for me about just leaning in to fear and leaning into the panic sensations and it completely changed everything for me. So when I would feel something come in, I would say, okay, I invite you in now. Like instead of trying to force you close, come in, come in and let's, let's, let's look at you from every angle and let's see what you're really here to teach me and to tell me. Um, and that's just diffused so much of my fear in life. Yeah. I always think about, um, a wise yogi once said, what do you experience when you meditate? And he said, fearlessness. Mm. Because life is really just full of fear, and it's about fear, you know? And if we can overcome it, I mean, just everything from the fear of, how's my life going to turn out? All the way to the fear of death, to the fear of this, things, for the fear of unknown. It's always about the unknown, and if you can demystify that stuff, you know, through meditation and through spiritual practice, I feel like you can overcome a lot. And um, Yeah. You know, I was also thinking about um, how do you stay present in your life? Um, you know, how do you move past, you know, things like not being able to predict the future, regrets, life, and all that stuff? How do you stay present and stay in the now? Yeah. It's something that I daily work on, and some days I do better than others. Meditation is huge for me in that aspect. So every morning now when I wake up, um, fitting in at least 20 minutes of meditation to start my day just to really ground me into the present moment, and that sets the tone for the rest of my day versus... Uh, what I used to do, uh, waking up and like checking my Instagram or my emails or, and then that just puts me in this kind of like frenetic headspace of like, oh my gosh, what do I have to get done? Um, and trying to make every moment, uh, meditation. So when I'm watch washing the dishes, being so present to washing the dishes, all sensations to my hands and the feeling of the water and the heaviness of the plate, Um, when I'm driving to be really, really present to every single thing that's going on in that car rather than I, you know, I know we've, maybe it's just me, but I've had moments where like you're driving somewhere and then you get home and all of a sudden you're like, 
how did I just get here? Like, I don't even remember passing or going under that bridge or like, and then that you, you just know that you were zoned out the entire time. Yeah. So meditation has been huge for me in connecting to present. And then anytime I have, um, when I feel my thoughts just start to drift off, just coming back, anchoring back into, could be a physical sensation, anchoring back into breath. Um, and really there's so much power in being here being here now you always think about that too because we wake up in the morning we have our morning rituals we eat you got to feed the body take a shower Mm -hmm. got to cleanse the body where's the time that we fit in to feed the soul you know Mm -hmm. it's like you got to take that time to constantly nourish you know the spiritual aspects of your life because i mean i always go back to like uh, the yoga philosophy is we're all spiritual beings having a material experience. Mm-hmm. And if we can, you know, come to the spiritual realization that I'm not the body, I am a soul, a jiva atma, mm-hmm. a spiritual being inhabiting the body, you know, and that becomes my priority is nourishing the soul and helping other people nourish the soul. All of a sudden, material life isn't such a big deal, you know, and you can start to roll with the punches that life throws at you because. No matter what's going on externally around you can affect the environment inside of you. Um, yeah. Who do you find inspiring? Who makes you consciously high? <laughs> There's this amazing yogi. His name is Tamal Dodge. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously. <laughs> um, I'll give you the money later for saying that. <laughs> But you, honestly, you are incredibly inspiring, amazing. You really live it. Um, you don't just preach it. You 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 walk it. You you live it. You teach it. Um, there's gosh, there's there's a lot of teachers uh, along the way that I'm really inspired by. One of my other favorite teachers here locally um, in LA is Jerome Mercier. I love him. He, he practices at Yoga Salt now all the time. Yes. <laughs> He's fantastic. Uh, he's another person that I just really, like, he, he just lives it. You know, he wakes up and, I mean, I don't wake up with him, so I don't really know. But I feel like he's, you know, like he's meditating and yogaing and surfing and, and just really living what he teaches. So I'm really inspired. Um, I'm inspired by anyone that, that's just living their truth and doing it authentically and trying to make the world a better place. Um, I'm inspired by... Like Thich Nhat Hanh and and um, some some of those teachings, um, and he you know talks a lot about forgiveness and and anger and also being present and being really anchored in the breath and you know breathing in. I smile and um, I have a whole bunch of people like and just random people like Ellen DeGeneres. Oh my gosh, I want to be on her show. I want to do a handstand for Ellen. I love her. She gives away prize and she's the best. You're going to go see Where's Dory? Or Finding Dory? Yes, I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I just feel like anyone who's out there who's um, in a big or small way, uh, you know, trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you find balance. What's the day in the life of Liz Arch? I mean, we want to know the details, like, what do you eat? Yeah. How do you find balance, not just on your hands, but in your life? Yes. All that kind of stuff. Good question. The last year, kind of actually this year and the last year, uh, I've really been 
making an effort to create more balance in my life and to practice more self-care. I feel like self-care is really, really important and it can be something that we lose sight of when we're teaching and we're giving so much of our time and our energy to other people um, because we always want to care for our students. And so, you know, like when I first started teaching, I lost my personal practice. And I think that that can happen to a lot of new teachers because Mm. you're hustling, you're teaching so many different classes, you're trying to... um, you know, make enough so that you can just live and sustain and support yourself. Um, and so for me, I was running back and forth, you know, I was teaching like 25 classes a week all over town and fitting in privates. And, and then I just, my own personal practice suffered. So I've really had to make a conscious commitment to, to care for myself. And so now I love my schedule. I like, I feel like I don't even work, even though I work tremendously hard. So I wake up in the morning and I, my morning ritual is, um, I'm going to get very specific for you. So my morning ritual is I do oil pulling. So I coconut oil and I just swish it for 20 minutes in my mouth as I'm walking my dog. So I'll take my little dog out. Nalu. Um, Nalu, Nalu. Nalu. She's the best. (laughs) Actually, I should rewind. So I wake up. First thing, when I wake up, I cuddle my dog for like a good like. Nalu. (laughs) (laughs) She's the best dog. I cuddle her for like five minutes and I, you know, we have copious amounts of cuddle time. And then I meditate in bed before I actually get up. Uh, and then I do my oil pulling. I do lemon with um, warm water just to stoke my digestive fires. Um, then I make breakfast. I Usually it's a green juice or a smoothie. Um, and then I head off to teach. So I have my morning classes that I teach at Yoga Salt. And after class, I go to jujitsu. So I carve out time for myself in the middle of my day. And I do two hours of jujitsu, which I love. Um, and if I don't get in my jujitsu, I'm much grumpier. So... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it's really important. And then I usually teach a few more classes and um, and then I'm just home. I'm very much a homebody, so I'm, I'm not out doing anything incredibly exciting. But what's exciting for me is just going to yoga, cuddling my dog, and doing jujitsu. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Nalu. <laughs> I love your dog. <laughs> she's losing all of her fur now, though. Oh, I, she's so. having doggy anxiety. So. It's going to make her even more ugly cute. I know. She's so ugly cute. But one of um, our regulars that comes to my class at Yoga Salt, I just found out that he runs a homeopathic dog uh, store. So there's natural dog anxiety. And apparently humans can take it too. That's so awesome. you and dog can. You know, that's something I talk to people and friends of mine that have dogs and things like that because we feed our, our animals cooked food i'm just gonna go on a total Mm -hmm. side rant let's do it came to my mind you know everyone loves dogs well there's this uh study called pottinger's cats Mm. anybody's ever heard of it so pottinger pottinger's cats was this guy dr pottinger where he took a litter of kittens and he divided in two so he split the litter in half and half the kittens were fed Mm -hmm. raw kitten food uncooked the other half of the litter was fed the same exact food but it was cooked the kittens who were fed the cooked food all died early er, of cancer and these different diseases that we suffer in our modern culture. And the cats that were fed the raw food were fed, were lived a full life and died of old age. But then those kittens all had children. And so the litter of kittens that came from the 
cats that are fed cooked food were still fed cooked food. The kittens from the litter of kittens that had raw food were also fed raw food. The ones that were fed cooked for the second generation died even earlier than their parents mm. and had these different diseases. And then the kittens that were fed raw food still lived a full-term life. So I always tell people, oh my God, if you feed your animals cooked cat food or dog food or whatever it is, you know, there are companies out there like I, uh, a friend of mine, he uses Natural Choice products. They have doggy enzymes mm. and doggy and kitten enzymes. So they're digestive enzymes that are um, going to replace the enzymes that were cooked and killed in the process of the food being heated. So the reasons that these cats were experiencing disease early on is the food had no enzymes left in it. There's no enzyme nutrition. Enzymes are like the construction workers for your body. So if you have like lumber, nails, things to build a house, but you have no construction workers to build your house, nothing's going to happen. So if you're not having enzymes in your body and you're constantly depleting your enzymes by not eating enzyme-rich food, your body is going to, you know, lose its ability to distribute the nutrient where it needs to go and also heal itself when it's injured. And so these animals that were fed cooked food were all experiencing these degenerative diseases because of that. And so if you do feed your animals cooked food, you can always feed them. Um, cooked food with animal enzymes, animal supplements. Because you were just saying, yeah. oh, there's like a naturopath store and things like that, which just helps animals so much. And um, I I, major, I'm a firm believer in that. I have major doggy mom guilt now. I feel like I'm killing my dog <laughs> slowly. Oh, my no, but goodness. One of my, one of my good friends, he's in the movie industry, and he's he loves his dog, Maddie. He's a beautiful golden retriever. And we were on vacation with him and his family, and he was... We were talking about animals and talking about. He started talking about his dog and his dog's uh, family history because you can find out what the ancestors of the dog had and things mm. like that. And he was concerned about his dog, and I brought that up to him. And then, as soon as we were done with our vacation, we we're in Sun Valley, Idaho, with him. And I came back to LA. He called me up. He's like, "What were the name of those enzymes and stuff, man? I want to. I want my dog to live a long life and things." So you know, I think there's always time to replenish. Um, the deficit of enzymes that have been kind of removed from your body, you can always um, yeah. refill it. I mean, that's the same thing as you and I were talking about before about injuries. And I blew up my knee before, and I blew out my MCL, had an ACL and meniscal tear, which is very bad. And, um, you know, my MCL tear was full. I had a partial ACL tear and a partial damage to my meniscus, but I just took loads and loads and loads of enzymes. I'm not prescribing this to anybody. I'm just telling you about my own personal story, by the way, everyone mm -hmm. who's listening. But um, I took loads and loads of Vitalzyme, MSM, and turmeric, and, you know, my leg is totally fine. It's crazy. It all healed itself. So, you know, if you can replenish those enzymes, I feel for myself that you can do yourself a lot of good and the people around you, animals, a lot of good. Yeah. I think. It also should be noted that uh, you're superhuman. Uh, no, but I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that too, that our body's own natural capacity to heal is astounding if we just give it the space and give it um, the right nourishment that it needs. And I think we're in such a rush to go to a doctor, get prescribed a pill or, you know, they and, and doctors, their, their job is to, you know, surgeons, their job is to cut. So anytime you go to a surgeon, that's always what they're going to tell you. It's like, oh, we should, you know, cut this, cut that, go in. Um, and there are so many natural alternatives that you can try out first before you 
you know, use that as a last resort. Absolutely. Before they say, hey, we're going to take your arm and your ear off and you'll be fine. Oh, yeah, um, it's true. I had a hip injury um, a few years ago and I couldn't figure out what it was. And I went to a few different doctors and one doctor told me it's a labral tear. One doctor told me it was a, something with my adductor. Uh, so the one doctor, you know, said, I want to give you cortisone shots into your hip for, for the labral tear. And the other doctor was like, we absolutely have to do surgery and we're going to cut your adductor. And they were saying such different things that I thought, how can you both, you know, be so sure of your opinion? And one is really recommending surgery and the other one is recommending cortisone, which is just going to mask the pain. It's not going to do any healing. Um, and so I opted not to do either of them. And instead, I went to a really great physical therapist and I started to really understand the physical imbalances in my body. Uh, my glutes weren't firing properly in certain things. And so I just started to get really, really um, aware of, of what my imbalances were and then working on strengthening the weak places and, and, um, and then also doing a lot of emotional work, looking at the underlying reasons for what might be living in my hips, you know, kind of stemming back to that first experience I had in pigeon pose where I started crying. It's like understanding like what am I holding in my hips? Um, what, what's holding me back? And I started looking at kind of legs as legs. What do they represent? They represent you moving forward in life. They carry you forward. They literally hold you up and, and move you forward. And I was in, at that particular time feeling very stuck and where I was in life. And, uh, I was working through some really challenging emotions. I had just gone through divorce. And so it was like getting through the emotional hurdle and letting go of that, um, that was really kind of, uh, you know, hard, hard, challenging moments and just moving forward. And so once I started to peel back those layers too, everything naturally healed. So I never had to have surgery. I didn't have to have a cortisone shot, nothing. I just, my body self-healed, but it takes work to do it. Yeah. I actually think it's good for, you know, people and also myself to actually, this is going to sound kind of funny, but to experience pain, a little bit physical pain, mm -hmm. um, and people are like, why? That's horrible. Why would I want to experience physical pain? Why well, I feel like we lose touch um, with feeling so many different things that we want to mask it, medicate it, drown it. And obviously in medication, there is instances where it has to be uh, implemented in specific instances. But I feel like it's abused to the point where we don't feel anything. And, you know, life is painful. And there has instances and moments where, you know, you're going to have to feel and experience physical pain. And... If you're able to actually learn how to cope and deal with even some physical pain, it's going to prepare you for other things. It's like training your mind to deal with things in a different way. And, you know, I've had uh, loved ones who passed away heavily medicated, and then I had loved ones who passed away completely unmedicated, but heavily meditated, <laughs> like my mug says right here. Um, and it was a totally different experience because they had prepared themselves, you know, in such a way to make their mind uh, fixed on something spiritual so that they could overcome the physical discomforts they're feeling as they're passing. And, you know, and my father passed away when I was um, 17, 18 years old, and um, I was very, very close to my father, very attached to him. We were, you know, uh, you know, very, very um, tight-niched family. And uh, it's like my dad used to always say, he'd be like, my kids are my best friends. 
he'd always say that to us and it was really that way but my dad was such a deep spiritual person and he was my first spiritual teacher and um, raised me with yoga and meditation and gave me so many tools for life and um, you know, my father when he passed away he passed away heavily meditated not medicated and he refused all medication because it said he wanted to pass away completely conscious and clear and be able to fix his mind and heart on God and when he passed away he had his eyes closed and a big smile on his face and he was chanting names of God on his beads and you know a lot of people will say all oh, your parents will teach you how to live well I thought my father definitely taught me how to live but more importantly he taught me how to die and you know it wasn't like all of a sudden at the time of death he was like oh this is time for me to meditate he spent a lifetime of dedication to meditation so that was a spiritual muscle memory for him like it's a physical muscle memory for us to do things and you know watching him live that life and then pass away in such a graceful way was spiritually inspiring and it's very you know painful for me to think about it but at the same time it's also um, super inspiring and a story that my father used to tell me as a kid is when Gandhi was um, doing all his uh, civil rights stuff and liberating India and all these different things and people used to call him Mahatma Gandhi which means great soul and he'd say you're not allowed to call me Mahatma you can only call me Gandhiji you can't call me great and they're like why why can't you're doing such amazing stuff he says because it is not until it is proven that at the time of my death, when I am assassinated, that I can raise my hand and forgive my assassin and have the names of God on my lips as I pass. Because in not just Vedic culture or East Indian culture, but in yoga culture, um, the poses are very secondary. It's like a helpmate to the actual practice of yoga, which is to yoke or unite with God. And it's a philosophical, deep understanding in that culture that wherever you go at the time of death is going to decipher where you go in the next life and Gandhi knew that if he was thinking of God he would go to God if he's thinking about something else he's gonna go somewhere else you know whatever your greatest attachments are that you form through the course of a lifetime will decipher where you pass so in when he said this to everybody that if I have the names of God on my lips then you can call me a great soul because that is considered spiritual consciousness the highest level of spiritual consciousness so everyone stopped calling him it and then the day that he was assassinated, he got shot, he raised his hand, he closed his eyes, and he forgave the man that shot him. Mm -hmm. And then he started saying, Ram, 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 Ram. And growing up, my father used to always say, that's how I want to pass, and that's how my father passed. And, wow. you know, so I feel like we have to feel some discomfort in this life and get okay with feeling mm -hmm. some pain, but learning how to deal with that pain, learning how to deal with you know discomfort and like you were saying the body's ability to heal one of my good friends um, that I actually do jujitsu with he's a chiropractor and he always tells me this quote he's like uh, chiropractors say this all the time and medical doctors have this where it says the body's innate ability to heal itself but I always think about that it. it's not just healing its physical self but you can heal your own your body you can heal your emotional trauma all these different things if you allow it to happen mm -hmm. and you know I find it extraordinary um, if we open our minds to things that we're not usually open to, what we can actually do and how far we can take it. Yeah. Wow, that's such a powerful story about <laughs> your dad. Like, that makes me want to cry. It's, it's so beautiful. It's so poignant and so beautiful and so so true that it's, it's uh, not only learning how to live, but learning how to die and learning how to die gracefully. And that's really, I think, you know, where the where the journey really begins. Yeah, uh, and it's... 
I find it just because especially in our Western culture, we've diluted yoga so much that we put 99% of our emphasis on physicality, 1% on spirituality. Mm-hmm. When it really, yes, you want to put a large emphasis on the physicality and yes, it, it's super healing. You got to take care of your body, your temple, but we've got to bring back the spiritual Spiritual. element so that we're not losing in translation and Hollywoodizing the whole thing. And, you know, it's something that I feel it's diluted in our culture. And it comes down to not just the poses becoming the priority, but we dilute the philosophy because we don't want to make people uncomfortable because there's aspects of the philosophy that are controversial for our Western minds to comprehend. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just putting it all out there and, you know, if you're hungry for it, you will eat it. If you're not hungry for it and your plate is full, you'll turn it away. So you got to let people decide if they're hungry or they're full and just present it the way it should be presented. And, you know, I, I used to, when I first uh, started teaching yoga in LA, I used to see people with mala beads. And I grew up in an ashram and you use your mala beads mm-hmm. in an ashram. But I go, oh, awesome. Like, what do you chant on your beads? Like, and people would be like, this is part of my outfit. Yeah, what are you necklace. talking about? <laughs> so when I give people beads, I like it means so much to me. Like when I give you beads, because it's beads are supposed to be used. Malas are supposed to be part of your spiritual practice. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just like a scarf or a headband. It's it's something that you use to help you uh, create that spiritual muscle memory. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're running out of time. But where do you uh, see your yoga going from here? Um, what do you want to do next? Yeah, uh, one project I'm really excited about is uh, I want to do more giving back. I want to do more more service. Um, and so I've recently partnered with an organization called the Purple Dot Yoga Project. And nice. the intention of the organization is really to use yoga as, as a tool of empowerment um, and to help heal people specifically who have been through any kind of abuse, domestic violence, and trauma. So our goal is to uh, create yoga workshops all around the country and, and internationally where where we bring in yoga, mindfulness, meditation, um, aspects of life coaching, and and just really create a safe space where where people feel like they can share where they can be vulnerable where they have they have a safe house to share their stories and their wounds um so we we can we can lift each other up and we can inspire each other and empower each other and to help move forward and and really to go from um baseline to thriving and for specifically people who have been through domestic violence you know um you know we call ourselves survivors so but it's really this this message of going from surviving to thriving and so that's something i'm really really excited about um doing and we're gonna bring it over to the west coast and so i'm i'm gonna be the new kind of west coast director for this organization um, and I just want to do more of that, just more of empowering, also um, using yoga and meditation and mindfulness and just this platform um, as a teacher to to help people feel really okay about who they are and being in their bodies and um, removing any layers of shame, guilt, self-blame, and just inviting in self-love and letting that spread to all corners. So that and and some handstands along the way. <laughs> I always love that quote. Lose yourself in the service of others. Yes. You know. God, that's what life's about. Yeah. Like that's what makes it really meaningful. It does. I mean, you find like you get more unhappy, the more 
shit that you acquire for yourself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, you do have to take care of yourself. Obviously, you got to eat right, take time for yourself to relax, meditate, you know, do that self-care. But at the same time, if you go too overboard and you're like, I've bought myself 12 cars, I've got, you know, this many clothes in my closet, this much stuff, yeah. it, you become more and more and more unhappy. Yeah. You know, so it's like, you notice that some of the happiest people I've ever met in my life are the poorest people I've ever met yeah. in my life because their life was not about material things. It's was it's it's one of those mind-boggling things. There's a great book out there um, called Small is Beautiful. It's mm-hmm. about this English economist who's supposed to go to this small country in Asia to teach them how to become a civilized culture. Hilarious. But when he gets there, this whole little village in Asia the entire village is surrounding a temple and they all live very simply and they're the happiest most organized loving um spiritually rich culture and he comes back to england writing a whole book talking about his experience how he went there to change these people but they changed him yeah and he realized that small was beautiful and um you know it always goes back to that it always go back to helping other people stepping yeah. inside yourself yeah and really just the simplest moments can be the most profound like just a single moment of connection throughout your day is so powerful and just those moments like I was on a plane coming back from I think it was coming back from New York and um and I was just sitting looking out the window and there was the most amazing sunset and it literally brought me to tears like just looking at the sunset and I was just feeling so grateful to be a part of this world and nature and to be able to look out a window and see the most gorgeous sunset and I'm sitting there like crying and the person next to me is like what's wrong with this weirdo <laughs> sitting next to me but like those are the moments it's just the mo- the simplest things that can bring the most peace and presence and joy absolutely yeah any last words for our listeners oh um Yoga is amazing. Meditation is even more awesome. Yeah. And jujitsu is cool. And jujitsu is super cool. <laughs> Heavily meditate yourself, <laughs> not medicate yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you, Liz, for dropping by. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. All right, it was everybody. A Namaste. Aloha.